one of the things that we're doing, if you're new here to Heights Christian Church, one of the things that we do is we go through the Word of God in five years, and we're on our first year of, of doing that the second time around. We've already done it once. We're stepping through and doing it again. And how we do that, there's a couple of ways that you can participate with us going through the Word of God. One is you can go to the information desk and ask for a schedule of reading. We have a schedule of reading for the entire year. Obviously, we're coming to the end of this year, so there's not that many readings that are left. Um, But we'll have a schedule out for year two very soon uh, in the next couple of weeks that you'll be able to grab. And it'll have all the readings for the entire year for next year as well. This is how you can keep up with us. We read together as a congregation Monday through Saturday. And then our sermons are based upon, in whole or in part, the scriptures that we've read. Now, the other way that you can follow us and be a part of that daily reading with us is on our YouTube channel. We do a daily devotion based upon our reading. We read the entire scripture for that day, but we partner it with uh, a message that kind of goes with us for that day. In other words, we be able to take a little something with us uh, from, from the scripture reading. And so we have a devotional that happens online, and you can go to our, uh, our YouTube channel. It is youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. And from there you can subscribe, click the bell for notifications, and you can receive a devotional every single day, Monday through Saturday, that goes through our readings together. And it's through these two mediums that you can participate with us going through the Word of God. And we're hoping that when we come on Sundays together, we are able to understand the scriptures a little bit more that we're breaking down. And this week we were in Romans chapter 9 through 11. How many of you read this week Romans 9 through 11? I will tell you right, at, right away. These are some of the hardest chapters of interpretation in all of scripture. A lot of people take this a lot of different ways. And we want to break things down uh, a little bit easier for you guys, hopefully, to make make this make this section of scripture a little bit more understandable. Because there are some things that are said in the in these passages that can be taken a lot of different ways. And I'll tell you this: there's disagreement among fellow believers in Christ on certain aspects of this. We won't be clearing up that controversy today, but we will be taking a stand on a, a certain a certain way of interpreting this particular passage of Scripture, but just realize that there are other well-meaning and, uh, and studied believers who take a different understanding of that. But we're here to try and understand the Scriptures the best that we can with the grace that God has given us. So with that being said, uh, the title of the sermon today is, Who is Spiritual Israel? Who is Spiritual Israel? And the reason for that title is very uh, is varied. We have at the end of this section of scripture, chapters nine through eleven is, if you will, our third chapter. Paul has been going through different things that he's talked about. Week one, we talked about sin and how sin has all affected us and how we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore there's no boasting. We're not better than anybody else. Last week, we talked about the faith that is exercised by those who believe that God keeps his promises, and those promises are ultimately kept in Christ Jesus, and his resurrection is the down payment on all the promises that have yet to be fulfilled because God is true to his word. And those who believe in those things realize that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, this next section... 
Paul is talking about Israel and he speaks of Israel in a couple of different ways and unfortunately for us that can become confusing because he he leans into and out of this idea of Israel and it's like wait a second which one is he talking about and it can make it very confusing so we're going to be talking about things that honestly we debate over as Christians in this passage of scripture I'm hoping to bring some clarity into this passage of scripture and help you to see really what Paul's talking about, no matter what side of the issue you end up falling on. Um, So we're going to start with the end in mind. And so we're going to look at the end of this section of scripture. One of the things you need to know about is that in Pauline letters, which really Romans is just a long Pauline letter, okay? What he does here in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians is he spends a good portion of the first part of his letter laying out the case for Jesus. And then the second part of his letter is because this is who Jesus is, this is who we ought to be in Christ. Chapter 11 marks the end of who Jesus is. Chapter 12 begins the because this is who Jesus is, chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 12 through to the end is this is how we're supposed to act in Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's take a look at what he says here at the end of Romans 11. Starting in verse 25, it says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Well, we read this. And it can become really confusing really quick concerning what is actually being said because of this phrase that is in there. And we're going to be talking about this phrase and what this means and what actually is happening in this passage of Scripture. But in verse 26, it says, and so all Israel will be saved. It's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? What does Paul mean by all Israel will be saved? And I think that this is where we start seeing a distinction between the race of Israel, which is the Jewish people, and the faith of Israel, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. This is something that as we've been going through the book of Romans, Paul has continually made that delineation. As he speaks to the Jews, he breaks down the Jews and the Gentiles and this idea of faithfulness between them. That there's a shared faith for those who truly have the faith of Israel. So let's take a look. 
real quick at some of these that we've already looked at before in the book of Romans. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 2. As Paul is laying out the whole idea that all are under sin, here's what he says to the people in Rome concerning this. Starting in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, even now defending them, And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Christ Jesus as my gospel declares. Do you notice what he did right there? He talked about the law. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. Those of you who are Jews that are under the law. It's not the ones who have the law who are righteous. It's the ones who do the law who are righteous. So when Gentiles, who are not Jews, do the things that the law requires, they become a law in and of themselves. Do you see the breaking down of this barrier that Paul is doing? He is breaking down this idea of Jewish descent and Jewish faith, right? We're talking about Israelite descent and Israelite faith. And he says, the Gentiles can exercise the same faith as the Jews, even though they don't have the law, because they're walking in the law, right? Jews and Gentiles can both see that they fall short of the glory of God. Gentiles were very receptive to that. As a matter of fact, Gentiles who did not have the law still knew that they didn't stand up to God's standard. And those of us who are here, guess what? We don't stand up to our own standards, do we? We recognize whatever standards we make, do we break them? Are we, are we a little hypocritical toward those things? Amen? How many? Yes? And we realize that. And so, guess what? Here in chapter 2, Paul is already breaking down this barrier, right? Between the idea of a people of Israel and a people of faith, which could include both Jews and Gentiles. Further down in the same chapter... Chapters, uh, verse 25 through 29, we start talking about circumcision. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you've not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Do you see the breakdown again? Here we are, circumcision. You've been given circumcision. And to be a Jew, to be even a, uh, a proselyte Jew, you would get circumcised. You're circumcised so that you have a physical mark on your body that identifies you as these people. And Paul's argument here is, if you're a lawbreaker, who cares if you're circumcised? 
If you think that you're a Jew, and I, I, I can do whatever I want. So I'm a Jew by lineage, but I can do whatever I want. I'm a Jew, and I have the physical marks on my body, but I can live however I want. It's like, won't those who are not Jews, but they obey the requirements of the law, condemn you, even though you have both the written law and circumcision. Circumcision isn't circumcision done by hands. It's by the heart, by the Spirit of God. Again, what is he doing? He's breaking down this barrier between Jew and Gentile. Correct? This is what we're seeing right here. Chapter 2. He continues on a couple chapters later. Stepping into this idea of justification by faith. So we, we talk about sin. We talk about how we all fall short. Well, he covers that. And he says, look, Jew and Gentile alike are here. So now we come into the idea of faith. Same thing when he starts talking about Abraham. Starting in chapter 4. Starting in verse 4. It says this. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as his righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see what he did there? He just broke down another barrier. Yeah, you're talking about Abraham, the father of faith. He's not just the father of faith for the circumcised. He's the father of faith for the uncircumcised, for those who would believe God. We talked about that last week. But he's breaking this down because this is a Jew-Gentile breaking down of what he's trying to say. He's trying to say it's not heritage that saves you. It is belief in what God has done through the promises that were given to the patriarchs and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. And if you keep trusting in your works to do it, you will not have that faith. That's what this continual mantra that Paul has says in Romans. And so he picks up in Romans chapter 9, the beginning of our readings this week, In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, listen to what is said here. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Did you catch all that? Do you, do you catch what he's saying? He goes back and revisits this argument. And he says, not all Israel is Israel. It's a crazy statement, isn't it? Not all Israel are Israel. I wish that I could be cut off for the sake of my brethren, that they might have eternal life. The people of Israel, the Jews, this is what he's saying. Those who are descended from the lineage of Abraham and are Jewish people, I wish I could be cut off so that they might know Christ. See, what Paul is talking about here is something that we even struggle with today. The idea that the Jews were born into a Jewish family, they thought they were the chosen people of God, and that made them good. I'm good. I was born in a Jewish family. We're God's favorite. Boom. Yeah, God loves me more. Stinks to be all you. Right? Because that's really the kind of way that it was. Anytime Paul would go to a city and proclaim Christ, as soon as the Gentiles come, they'd get all mad because it's not for you. It's only for us. These are our promises, not your promises. We get all of this. You don't get none of this. And every place Paul went, there was a persecution, and Paul would say, since you don't see yourself worthy of eternal life, I turn to the Gentiles. Read it. It's there in Acts. And he weeps over that. Because here the Jews thought that they were in because of their lineage. Because of their heritage. In the same way, there's a lot of you who may have grown up in a Christian home. And we think that that Christian home is somehow a covering for you and me and for our children and for everybody else. Don't get me wrong. It's a great blessing to be raised in a Christian home. But God doesn't have any grandchildren. What I mean by that is every one of us has to make that decision for Christ. You don't get in on your parents' faith. You don't get in on your household faith. Just because you were raised in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. It is a determination of you accepting the promises of God through Jesus Christ yourself. And there's no substitution. And yet if you ask most people today, if they're Christian, they'll say that they are Christian. And then they'll say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. That's not what makes you a Christian. And if you believe that, you fall into the same category of error that the Jews are falling into right here. They thought our heritage is enough to save me. No, it's not. It's not. And so if we recognize that not all Israel is Israel, and we recognize that not all of Abraham's descendants are necessarily Abraham's children, then it begins to poke at us concerning these questions, then who is? If not all of Israel is Israel, who's Israel? Sounds like Israel's having some sort of identity crisis here, don't you think? Not according to Paul. He knows what he's talking about, but he's separating the two. And I just want to point out, that's why I take you back through the scriptures so you can see at every step of the way, this is what he has been doing all throughout these first 11 chapters. In each of these sections, he's been very deliberate in making sure that people understand your heritage can't save you. 
Your works cannot save you. And so we ask ourselves, so what does that mean for you and I? And we enter into this next question, which is, oh, if only I had 17 hours to teach you guys. I mean, we could stay here all day. You guys good with that? Some of you are like, we got two people said, yeah, and then everybody, no, no, I'm not even. So, but to unpack this idea of predestination, because we read that in these chapters, in these verses, and it can become very confusing talking about predestination, because at the end, you get this idea that if all of Israel is going to be saved, is there a predetermined destiny for Israel? And that's why I'm trying to break this down a little bit for you guys to understand what's predestined. We have to understand what's predestined. So, who or what's predestined? Let's take a look at, at these questioning scriptures real quick that, that make us say, huh? I don't, I don't quite understand it. What's, what's he saying there? Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 24. For this is how the promise was stated, talking about Abraham and talking about the children of promise. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Notice again, the breakdown of Jews and Gentiles again, right? We see that in this passage of Scripture. But now we run into this section of scripture right here. And this section of scripture, oh, it messes with people so bad. Right? Because we look at this passage of scripture and like, whoa, 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 whoa. It sounds like, sounds like we don't have any choice here. It sounds like God just kind of says he's made some for mercy and some for, for not being merciful to. And oh, well. That'd be a scary proposition, don't you think? And I don't believe that that's what this passage is about. It can't be, and I'll tell you why. Because we have, we have discord in the scriptures if that's what this is about. And Paul himself makes it very clear in other passages that's not what he's talking about. So when we look 
at all of the examples that he gives. Sarah's going to have a son. They trust his promise. He has a son. We look at Jacob and Esau. And yes, it was proclaimed before they were born that the older will serve the younger. Right? But this isn't a matter of salvation. This is a matter of the older serving the younger. This isn't that one is saved and the other one isn't. And that other quote that we read there, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Do you know where that's from? That's from the book of Malachi. Do you know when Malachi was written? Over a thousand years after the account and over 2,000 years since we see Jacob and Esau come out of their mother's womb. What he's talking about there is Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated because what's happened? Jacob became, had Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel became Israel, regarded God, loved God, continued to serve God. Esau gave away his birthright from the very beginning for a bowl of stew and stood in opposition for God and God's people ever since. The hatred wasn't because there was a chosen and and he couldn't ever avoid it. It's that it was a hatred because there was no regard for God in Esau's actions or the descendants of Esau's actions. We go on down and we talk about the mercy and compassion of God and then we look at Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh said, I raised you up. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. Didn't say this to Moses. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh is raised up so that God might display his power and might. Interesting little sidebar. You can go back because God does say he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You can go back and look at it. I believe that the number of times that he hardens Pharaoh's heart before this statement is made is once or maybe twice. Every single time up until that point, except for once or twice, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And at this juncture, when this is proclaimed to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And after that moment, we see that God hardens his heart every time after that. Go back and read it. Take a look. Is it a chance? Is it that he didn't have an opportunity? No, he had plenty of opportunities. But there came that point of, nope, this is it. This is your last chance. I'm giving you this chance so that this might happen, but I will be glorified through you. And of course, God stands outside of time. These interactions that he had with Pharaoh, and he talks with Moses beforehand, and he says, Pharaoh's not going to listen. I already know how this is turning out. Pharaoh's not going to listen. But was that Pharaoh's choice? I believe it was. Because everything about this passage of Scripture has to do with the grace of God, not based upon works. Everything about this passage of Scripture is about that. We can look at other places in Scripture, and we know that the Scripture does not contradict itself because it's given by God through the Holy Spirit. The irony is, the next place I'm going to quote you is written by Paul himself. Is Paul going to say something one place and not something someplace else? Not a chance. Take a look in 1 Timothy chapter 2.
verses 1 through 6. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is the one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. How many people does God want saved? What's his desire? How many? All of them. And if it's all of them, there has to be a true, meaningful way in which all men can be saved. That there's a true choice on their part. We go back and look at the people of Israel We have to understand that if we're talking about all of Israel being saved, remember that's our proof text as we start, all of Israel will be saved. If we're just talking about the people of Israel as the Jewish people, there are some verses within Romans that doesn't make any sense. If we go back to Romans chapter 9, where we were before, starting in verse 30 and going into chapter 10, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued not by faith, but as if it were works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based upon knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you hear that? My heart's desire is that my fellow Israelites, the Jews, would be saved. But if all Israel is going to be saved, why would that matter? Why would he have an ache, an anguish in his heart for the people of the Jewish uh, origin if all of Israel is going to be saved in the end? And why? I'm not worried about it. They're going to be saved in the end. But that's not what he says. He affirms this over and over again throughout these three chapters. And he keeps saying it. In chapter 9 he says it. In chapter 10 he says it. And he says it again in chapter 11. Take a look. Chapter 11 verses 11 through 15. In talking about the Jews. And he says this again. I ask. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I make much of my ministry to stir my fellow Jews to envy so that what? I might save some of them. Notice he doesn't say all. Some of them. 
In other words, if they're not saved, they're not saved, right? And not saved means condemned because they have not believed in the one who's, who's coming, correct? So Paul is saying Jews don't just get the get into heaven free card, just like Christians don't get the get into heaven free card because you were raised in a Christian family. You have to make that decision for yourself. You have to understand what that decision is. And Paul is delineating these things. And he's saying, look, when I say all Israel is going to be saved, I can't be talking about the people of Israel as a heritage because all throughout what we're talking about, he declares that's not so. The Jewish people won't be saved unless they believe in Jesus. The Jewish people won't be saved unless they believe in Jesus. But here's the thing. The Gentile people won't be saved either unless they believe in Jesus. And he's bringing this this equalizing playing field to both of them. So it's not people in general. Otherwise, those verses wouldn't make any sense, right? And predestined. Who all is predestined? Well, we know it's not Israel. We just said that as far as the Jewish people. We've hinted at the idea that it's not just people in general. He doesn't just pick and choose certain people. We've already quoted 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he says he wants how many people to be saved? All of them. As a matter of fact, this is reaffirmed not just by Paul, but by Peter. If we look in 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. But that day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But God is patient for us, not wanting, not wanting what? Any to perish. But how many to come to repentance? All. He wants everyone to come to repentance. His patience toward us is that. So guess what? If we take the word of God seriously and try to understand what Paul is talking about, he cannot be talking that you are assigned either an, a, a place where you're going to be shown mercy or a place where you're not going to be shown mercy as an individual. It's not that he created Craig over here and said, Craig, I created you. You're a vessel of wrath. You're, going, you're dying and going to hell. That's what's happening to you. Right? We don't, we don't see that. That's, that's, that can't be what it is because all means all, right? That he wants all men to be saved. He wants none to perish but all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God all throughout. And therefore, that 
reality has to be real, not conceptual. Not a fake. Oh, that's not what it is. So what is this predestination that we're talking about? What is predestined? Because what is the elect? What does all of that mean? Because I read that and it almost seems like it's these categories. And it is a category, but it's not toward people. It's toward a placement of where we put Jesus. Rather, what is predestined is the position of people who choose to accept God's gift in Christ and the position of people who reject God's gift in Christ. That's it. You want to know who's predestined, who's elect? The elect are those who have chosen Christ. They're the ones who say, I believe and trust in the promises of God that are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And this same faith is for the Jew and for the Gentile. Who does not work for their faith because guess what? We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. We trust that God has provided a way through Jesus on his death on the cross for us and his raising from the dead. And we believe that because we believe that, we will have eternal life in him. And whether you are Jew or you are Gentile, that's the end of faith. And that is what designates you as spiritual Israel. This is why Paul can say not everybody who is of Israel is Israel. Because it's not a descendant thing. It's about faith. Not everybody who has the faith of Abraham are Abraham's children. In other words, we're not necessarily descended from Abraham. We're Gentile believers who believe the promise that was given to God given by God to Abraham and flows down through Jesus to us. And everybody who believes that is spiritual Israel. The Jews who don't believe that are not spiritual Israel. The Gentiles who don't believe that are not spiritual Israel. It's the only way to make sense of this passage. It's the only way in which all of Israel can be saved without contradiction. Because there's one faith that Paul is proclaiming that is for the Jew and for the Gentile alike. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the end of the law. So the Jew looks to the law that points to Jesus. And G comes to Christ in the same way that you and I who do not have the law but still realize that we fall short of the laws that are inside of us that point to the reality of Christ. We believe in the same Savior We believe in the same way in which we are justified and it's not through our works, it's through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So I believe when we look at the elect, I believe when we look at those who are saved, when we look at the idea of predestination, we're not predestining people, we're predestining positions. Those who realize that Jesus is Lord are predestined for glory. Those who do not accept Jesus as Lord, God's wrath remains upon them. This is what they're predestined for. But the beauty is you have a choice. You have a choice to follow God. Because God doesn't want anybody to perish, all to come to repentance. He wants every single person to come to the knowledge of God and live because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Whether you have a Jewish background or a Gentile background, no matter what kind of family you were raised up in, you can make the decision for Jesus today and follow him and receive the same grace because it isn't about you.
is about what he's done. John 3, 16 through 18 puts it this way. And you'll find that it agrees. It's exactly what Jesus talks about. It's, it's this positional arrangement, this predestined, not so much that you are predestined as an individual, but you are predestined by your choice whether or not you are going to accept Jesus Christ and be saved by his finished work or not. Words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Who's that available to? It's everybody, right? Whoever. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But notice what he says next. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Do you see the positional arrangement based upon a decision that you make for Jesus Christ? He's done all the work. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't find your way into heaven through your family, through your heritage, through anything else. It's through a decision of following Jesus, realizing that you and I are bankrupt We have nothing to offer, whether we are Jew or Gentile. And the only way in which you and I are saved and have the faith of spiritual Israel is by accepting the gracious gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Available to everybody. Everybody who believes. And that's God's desire. And you can't work harder to make it happen. You have to realize I'm worthless. I can't do it. I'm at the end, but he's done it for me. That's the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why that passage in Romans ends this way. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Would you stand with me? That mercy is available to you. The election that God has are those who have chosen Jesus and are predestined for glory with him forever because they've accepted his sacrifice. And those who have not chosen Jesus have rejected his sacrifice and the wrath of God remains on them not because he's unwilling but because we are. If you don't know this grace, if you've been trying to get into heaven by your family, by your heritage, by your past because somebody else did something like baptizing you as a child and you thought that that was going to make you good, I want to tell you today, That's not good enough to get you into heaven. And the only way that you can become part of spiritual Israel in which all of Israel will be saved is to accept the free gift that God has promised through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's available to you today. We invite you that if that is you, come, accept it. It's a free gift. And watch him transform your life. Then ask our elders to come forward. This or any other need, we want you to come forward and pray. But recognize this gift is for you. You did nothing to earn it. 
He did it all for you. You can't work for it. But I promise you this, you come to Jesus, he will transform your life from the inside out. That's what he does. God, thank you so much for this time and this day we have together. And I praise you, dear Heavenly Father, that you have predestined those who have chosen Jesus Christ to be with you forever in glory, not because of anything we've done, but because of your finished work through Jesus on the cross, through his victory over the grave, dear Heavenly Father, to give us a down payment on all of your promises being true. Thank you, O Lord, for that. If any do not know that grace, may they know it this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.